This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. When hundreds of Highland Scots stepped foot on the shores of the Cape Fear in the mid-1700s, they walked into a world on the edge of war. But for many of them, that palpable sense of unrest was a tension they knew all too well. In the decades prior to their grueling journey to America, their homeland rich with centuries of Scottish heritage, burrowed deep into the land, had been made virtually uninhabitable for them. A failed attempt to overthrow the British crown had resulted in oppressive new laws, and the skyrocketing prices of land were practically forcing them out of their own communities. This, in addition to the possibility the region's harsh climate would kill off their livelihood of livestock and crops right in front of their eyes. The world knew America was the land of promise and potential for anyone daring enough to seize it. So the Highland Scots did, by the thousands. Decades of immigration from Scotland to America, much of it through the still-infant Cape Fear region, would result in a substantial Scottish presence in North Carolina. They would bring with them a kinship view on life and a proclivity for agriculture. They held political posts and shared their culture with others in this burgeoning land of immigrants. Here in the North Carolina colony, they would make a home away from their own and build a legacy that still survives today. But as war for independence crept closer, the Highland Scots found themselves once again on the brink of conflict. Only this time, it wasn't a war of their making, but one that would force them to face the agony of choosing a side for the fight ahead. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week, we're going to revisit and dive deeper into a topic that we've previously mentioned on the podcast before, the Highland Scots. If you're a longtime listener of the show, or if you've gone back and listened to some of our earlier episodes, you'll remember that we talked about the Scots during our episode on the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge at the start of the American Revolution. For those interested, that is episode five of our second season. But the role of the Highlanders in the Cape Fear begins well before they charged into battle with broadswords drawn 
and their future in their hands. Even beyond the numerous history books and local organizations dedicated to keeping their stories alive, these Highlanders have been made famous by their depiction on the Star's television series Outlander and the historical fiction book series on which it is based by author Diana Gabaldon. But what is the true story of the Highland Scots in the Cape Fear? What brought them to North Carolina? And how did the war that birthed this nation serve to forever change the course of their history? As always, I'll share with you the story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend. And then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. And this week's guest is local historian and writer Kimberly Sherman. So sit back and settle in for this brand new episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we journey through time to uncover the history of the Highland Scots in the Cape Fear. The highlands of Scotland are a place of extremes. Stunning with mountainous vistas and luscious green landscapes, they are also a rugged terrain, with a harsh climate in the winter and a historically high rate of poverty. Those latter traits are what the highland Scots of the 17th and 18th centuries faced at a pivotal moment in their history. At that time... The region was ruled by the clan system, a kinship between people who established a shared community under the leadership of a clan chief. The chief, sometimes but not always related by blood to members of the clan, would be their voice in political matters and offer protection from outside interest, including other clans. In return, the members often families from a given region or followers of the chief, would pledge their loyalty to him, adopt his surname as their own, and if necessary, take up arms in the defense of the clan. That military clause came into play in the 1740s when many Highland clans joined Charles Edward Stuart in his attempt to seize the British throne from King George II. The Jacobite Uprising, as it was called, was intended to restore the Stuart House to the British throne, but it had already failed once in 1715. This second substantial attempt in 1745 was bolstered by the support of the Highland Scots, who saw returning the throne to the Stuart House as a way of protecting the clan system and limiting the encroachment of George's reign on their way of life. After what seemed like a promising start, it all ended in a bloody defeat at the Battle of Culloden in 1746, leaving the British throne to exert even more restrictive powers over the Scots, including new laws that forbid clan members from acting as military forces for their chief and even banned clans from wearing tartan or plaid patterns. It was all an attempt to dismantle the clan system 
by stripping away the symbols and the actions that had forged their sense of loyalty and community. Coupled with an increase in land prices and the typical challenges of a life in the highlands, the Scots were feeling the pressure of the world, like a boot stepping on their throat. So, they looked beyond their shores. Fortunately, the Scottish already had a foothold in North Carolina. The state's first royal governor under the crown, William Drummond, was actually a lowland Scot. It's believed that the earliest Highlanders to make the journey to North Carolina arrived in the late 1730s and settled along the Upper Cape Fear. They found a friend in the current North Carolina royal governor, Gabriel Johnston, another Scot who helped get them settled by negotiating a decade-long exemption from paying taxes. A large number of these early Scots settled near Cross Creek, which is now near present-day Fayetteville. In avoiding the failed insurrection back home, these Scottish immigrants were able to plant roots in the New World and, in turn, share with their family and friends in Scotland the virtues of life in America. And the most tempting prospect to write home about was the abundance of land, which was being taken away from the Highlanders in mass in what has now become known as the Highland Clearances. With that first-hand experience coming from trusted sources across the pond, the second wave of Highlanders would start trickling into the Cape Fear region around the 1750s and 1760s. But make no mistake, this was an exodus in Scotland. Some historians estimate at least 15,000 Highlanders were living in North Carolina alone by the dawn of the American Revolution. Their journey to America would have been a trying experience. Travel time was a month or two. Ship conditions would have been cramped and musty. Diseases like smallpox were a possibility on board, and the quality of the food and the amount of potable water would have devolved as the trip stretched on. Like so many settlers before them, the mouth of the Cape Fear River was a logical entry point to North Carolina for these seafaring vessels, meaning most of those coming into the colony docked at Brunswick Town's Port Brunswick, which was still the region's main port in the years leading up to the war. The port's surviving logs show vessels arriving with a hundred or more Scots at a time, even as late as the 1780s. Shallow river waters made a more northern passage impossible for these deep-water vessels, so the Scots would disembark at Brunswick and make their way to Wilmington or Cross Creek on foot or by smaller boats. Although Wilmington would have been the closest welcoming embrace for the Highlanders after a long journey, most wouldn't settle in the port city. The Highlands were an isolated place of independent living, so in coming to America, the Scots likely would have wanted to maintain some of that independence in their new homes. Many of them would travel upriver and secure land grants 
for the wilderness of what is now Cumberland County. But making a life in the Cape Fear would not have been a simple transition. The clan system had largely been dissolved in Scotland, and although family ties and the idea of kinship remained strong, here in North Carolina, they had to literally cut a life for themselves and their families out of a forest without the help or protection of a clan chief. The bitter cold of the Highlands had literally and figuratively thickened the skin of the Scots, who now faced a milder climate and much warmer summers. The cold, rocky terrain that they were used to had now been replaced by an ocean of trees and swampy wetlands. They had to adapt their agricultural habits to the soil of eastern North Carolina, employing new methods of farming and tilling in order to grow things like corn and wheat. Many would work to produce naval stores like tar, pitch, and turpentine reaped from the seemingly endless supply of the longleaf pine that had already made North Carolina famous. They were Presbyterians and built churches in order to practice their faith, even though the official religion of the British-run colony was Anglican. They spoke Gaelic, but managed to clear most language barriers with the surrounding communities of German, English, and Irish-speaking immigrants. And although the majority of the Scottish Highlanders would merely use Wilmington as a landing pad for their new lives in America, their stories would remain intimately intertwined with the Cape Fear heading into the Revolutionary War. The earliest Scots to arrive in the 1730s and 40s came at a time when the notion of rebellion was but a whisper among the colonists. Having already planted their flag on the land and established their own communities, they were, in a sense, dual citizens. It's possible that some aligned with the patriot ideology, or were at least sympathetic to the cause because they had forged a life here and wanted to see it protected. But it was a different story for those who arrived as the rebellion was taking shape. Knowing there was dissent brewing among the colonists, the royal authority started to look to the Highlanders, who had military experience and were considered sturdy stock from living off the land in Scotland, as essential members of the king's army, should war break out. Scottish representatives on behalf of the crown were sent to stealthily recruit Highlanders to the Loyalist cause, from Wilmington to Cross Creek. Some were even secured as soon as they stepped off the ship from Scotland and given loyalty pledges to sign to ensure their support in exchange for the promise of assistance in building a life in the colony. One question that has long plagued historians is how these Highlanders, many of whom had just fought and lost loved ones in a failed war against the British crown, could now pledge their allegiance and lives to the king on its throne. Their reasons for such a switch are plentiful and no doubt complex. 
but chief among them was a desire to maintain the status quo. They were new immigrants to America, and the prospect of a war that could dethrone the powers that had welcomed them in and given them a new lease on life was probably terrifying. They knew what a British-led country looked like and what role they could play in it, but they had no idea what a patriot victory would mean for their future. As the country marched toward war, not even Highlanders were spared from making the tough decision that would ultimately pit neighbor against neighbor. Some Scots would fight for the British, and others would side with the Patriot cause. But the most decisive moment for the Highlanders would come early in the war, at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge on February 27th, 1776. Then Royal Governor Josiah Martin was keen on the inclusion of the Highlanders in the Loyalist plans in North Carolina, particularly in his strategy to make an early play to secure the Lower Cape Fear River and its access to the Atlantic Ocean. This would require Highlanders and other North Carolina Loyalists to march downriver and meet up with several thousand redcoats from the British Army. Unfortunately for Martin, who had retreated to a command post aboard a ship at the mouth of the Cape Fear River, the Patriots had caught wind of his plan and were already mobilizing to stop the consolidation of British forces in the Wilmington region. This culminated in a collision of two armies in what is now the thick of Pender County. Hundreds of Highlanders had trudged through the swamps and wilderness from Cross Creek to join up with other North Carolina Loyalists on the road to Wilmington. But the Patriots had a plan to block them at the Widow Moores Creek Bridge, which stretched across a tributary of the Black River about 20 miles northwest of Wilmington. In preparation, the Patriots removed the boards from the bridge, and greased up the remaining foundation to make sure that any attempt at crossing was a fraught effort. And when the two armies clashed in the foggy early morning hours of February 27th, the Patriots delivered a swift and brutal defeat. Highlanders had led the Loyalist charge, but were mowed down by musket fire from the Patriots laying in wait across the creek. Less than 15 minutes after it began, the battle was over, even though the echo of bagpipes still lingered in the air. Some accounts even claim that the battle only lasted three minutes. In total, 50 Scots were killed in the skirmish, including Loyalist leader, Lieutenant Colonel Donald McLeod. Some 800 Loyalists who had fallen back or hidden after seeing the devastating fate of the first wave across the creek, were captured by the time the smoke of cannon fire subsided. The Patriot victory was an essential part of subduing the Loyalist expansion into the southern colonies for three years, allowing the rebels the chance to firm up their plans to seize autonomy. Especially in North Carolina, 
which would become the first colony to officially voice its commitment to independence, with the Halifax Resolves just a few months after the battle. But for the Highlanders who sided with the British, the war would prove to be a tough time. Those families who sought to remain in place while the men were off at war faced almost relentless persecution that would cause some of them to leave the region altogether in search of British safe havens. With the British surrender at the end of the war, many of those loyalist-leaning Scottish Highlanders in North Carolina would once again pack up their homes, their families, and their lives and look elsewhere for stability. They sought refuge in British-owned regions like Nova Scotia. Or they returned to Scotland, carried home on the hope that they could find a better life than what they once had. But the Scottish presence in North Carolina was not entirely extinguished by the war. Some of those who left would make their way back to the Carolinas, and even more managed to stand their ground in the newly recognized state and realign their loyalties to the satisfaction of their neighbors. Today, the Scottish heritage in North Carolina is strong because of those Highland Scots who braved the perils of immigration and the pains of war to forge a home in America. This was a land of immigrants when it sought to take its own independence. And the story of the Highland Scots is hardly the only cultural tale of perseverance that's woven into its foundational fabric. But the sacrifices made by these people to protect their families and further their future is an often unsung chapter in the Cape Fear's history. Joining me now to talk further about the Highland Scots in North Carolina and Wilmington specifically is Kimberly Sherman, a historian, writer, and educator here in Wilmington who is currently lecturing at Cape Fear Community College here in downtown Wilmington. Thank you so much for being here, Kimberly. Thank you, Hunter. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to start out by letting uh, Kimberly tell all of our listeners kind of how she got to this topic because you even spent time in Scotland. So how did you get to this, this topic? Yeah, so I grew up here in Wilmington and, uh, of course, grew up with the knowledge of Morris Creek and the battle there in 1776. Um, I actually remember back to probably around fourth grade, actually doing a little bit of a history project on Morris Creek and uh, something that just stuck with me for quite a while. And then uh, majored in history and did my master's at UNCW and eventually knew that I wanted to go into a Ph.D. program. When I did that, I thought, you know, I want to do something related to North Carolina history in the kind of early American period. So I was trying to find something that would kind of bring North Carolina into the larger Atlantic world, as we call it. And uh, a topic that I had felt like really needed some new attention was Scottish immigration to North Carolina and uh, brought open the perfect opportunity to potentially study abroad. And uh, I ended up doing my PhD at the University of St. Andrews um, between 2014 and 2018. 
In Scotland. Yeah, in yeah. Scotland. So you spent time there, so you definitely got to see kind of um, where these Highland Scots came from and also grew Absolutely. up where they ended up. And mm-hmm. so uh, that's why I thought you'd be a great guest for this one. I learned that that seemed like the perfect kind of pairing of interest and, you know, found knowledge of, mm-hmm. of your work that you've done. But I want to start out with uh, looking back to the beginning of this immigration of Highland Scots. Why would they have looked to America to have this next chapter when there's so many influences and there's so many factors pushing them out of Scotland. What was it about Wilmington and North Carolina and America that brought them here? Uh, as you mentioned, what are those, you know, those things they're pushing them out of Scotland? You know, historians, we often refer to these as push and pull factors. What are the things that are causing people to want to leave one, ca- one location? Um, in the case of Scotland in the 18th century, there's a lot of changes happening in regards to society and the economy. Um, farming techniques are changing. And of course, there's also uh, quite a lot of political uh, unrest with the Jacobite uprising. So that also has an impact on what's happening in Scotland. Um, so those are things that are going to be pushing people to leave. And then the actual attractions, those pull factors that want to bring people to new locations like America to North Carolina specifically to the lower Cape Fear would be things like land ownership, um, particularly for uh, Scots who maybe were tenants or subtenants and servants on these large farms and estates over in Scotland. There was very little opportunity for them to actually be able to own land in Scotland ever. Uh, Very little social mobility. So that attraction of being able to come over and potentially get land for yourself from the get-go and set up your own farm, be able to work that without any kind of employer, that's a huge draw. Um, And that's just one of the many things. Yeah. Well, and also, you have to remember at this time period, uh, this is still relatively the new world. I mean, this is, there's just not much development. Wilmington in this period, those, you know, 1730s, 40s, 50s, as they're slowly starting to make their way, Mm -hmm. um, it's still a lot of rural area. I mean, Wilmington's not very big itself. Brunswick town is, is also not very big. So there was plenty of place to plant your flag, I guess. Definitely. I mean, Wilmington is established in 1739, the same year that the first major immigration of Highlanders came over. So it's really all this kind of growth happening at one time. Yeah. And Wilmington was just a place of potential. I mean, so many people already here saw it. And then obviously they came in through the the river and and saw it as well. um, And then branched out into North Carolina. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, once they're here, there are those waves of Highland Scots coming in and, you know, you have some of those early ones and then there's more as you get closer to the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. Was there any type of pushback from the colonists who were already here, who helped develop this region, who, you know, maybe saw it as theirs and seeing more people come from overseas to take a piece of it? I mean, was there pushback or prejudice or did they find this place to be pretty welcoming? Uh, In general, I would say that there wasn't much pushback in terms of pushback against immigration. Um, Most people feel like there's plenty of room uh, to allow people to come in. Where there is a little bit of tension is particularly in places like Wilmington, port cities, where you have maybe a higher population of lowland Scots uh, who are definitely taking a lot of um, these kind of professional roles like merchants, they're doctors, they're politicians, and 
the ways in which they kind of function in society, they, they really focus a lot on kinship networks mm-hmm. and ultimately some of those elements of clanship that are kind of holdovers from Scottish society. Um, that was something that wasn't just endemic to the Highlands. So they tend to work together as Scots in groups, even if they're not necessarily related to one another. Mm-hmm. And that kind of working together um, often led to you know accusations from people that were not Scottish saying, well, they're just too clannish. They're, they're creating these factions and things like that, that are going to be, you know, overpowering and that sort of thing. That fear that, um, you know, not mob mentality, but seeing more and more people come over and having this connection that you just don't have. Sure. Probably was a little threatening to people who were trying to do exactly what the Scots were doing, which was to own land and make a name for themselves and make a name for their families. Mm -hmm. What do we know about those earliest Scots, you know, the the ones that you mentioned that come over at just as Wilmington's kind of getting its footing and becoming a, a, a settlement and the ones that come over closer to the revolution? I mean, was there any type of tension? Was that kinship still mm-hmm. there or was, um, you know, was it kind of bristling because those are almost two different generations of Scots coming right. over to America? Right. One thing we can actually look back to is there are quite a few Scots that end up in North Carolina or Carolina as a colony, even before the 18th century, guys like Thomas Pollock, um, William Drummond, and others who are going to be in positions of power. Um, But really kind of the key transition that's happening is in 1729, North Carolina becomes a royal colony. And so it's under direct crown control at this point in time. And when that happens, they're bringing in new colonial leadership. It's no longer the Lord's proprietors who are calling the shots. And so the Crown and the Board of Trade back in London start to choose new people to fill those roles. And the first person they fill uh, the governorship with is a Scot, and his name is Gabriel Johnston. Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnston is actually from the, the borders region of Scotland, kind of right along that border with Scotland and England, and uh, eventually spends some time up in Dundee and actually in St. Andrews. He gets his degree there and teaches there for a while. Um, but then he kind of through patronage networks and connections that he has back in London, he is able to then get this job in North Carolina, comes over here in 1734, takes up that job. And uh, from there, we kind of start to see a shift happening. Certainly, there are people that he brings over kind of directly uh, through his influence and those and those kind of links of patronage. Um, but then he certainly seems to be a bit more favorable towards bringing over more Highland Scots. We don't have any direct evidence that he you know, set up any kind of recruitment programs or really favored them specifically over any other group, because there were certainly other groups that were immigrating to North Carolina at the same time. But um, he did try to push through some legislation in the Colonial Assembly um, for honoring land grants for these individuals that were interested in coming over in the 1730s. Uh, In one case, in 1739, as this first colony, this first immigration group comes over, they're known as the Argyle Colony because they come over from Argyleshire. Um, they start to petition the governor for, you know, some help essentially in getting started in this new colony. And uh, Johnston wants to give them land grants. And then he also advocates for them to get um, a a kind of a a financial aid package, if you will, of about a thousand pounds, which was nothing to sneeze at at that point in time. That's pretty, pretty uh, large amount. So they had Um, an advocate. At exactly. The top of the exactly. Yeah. So in the end, uh, unfortunately, they don't get that that um, big sum, uh, but they do get the opportunity to get these large land grants. And most of them 
When they arrive in 1739, it's in September of that year, they arrive here on the Lower Cape Fear, come in via the port at Brunswick and through Wilmington. And um, eventually they they start scouting out, you know, where do they go next? And they end up more uh, inland from here, kind of the upper Cape Fear region, what is today parts of Bladen County, Cumberland County, and so forth. And the city that we think of as Fayetteville today would have originally been part of that settlement, uh, which was known as Cross Creek. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I think is interesting about, you know, that relationship between the two and is, you know, they come at two different times. They're still immigrants mm-hmm. coming into another land, um, but they're, those early ones are coming into a country that is, um, one, becoming prosperous, but two, has a really good outlook. But by the time some of those later ones come, there is that tension between colonists and British rule. Absolutely. And so they're coming into a powder keg pretty much, um, which is really unfortunate because then they have to look to their future and what do they want to do? Um, now before we get to war, I wanted to ask what would life have been like for these Scots here? I mean, were they able to replicate what they were used to in Scotland here in North Carolina, or did they kind of have to adapt to the terrain, the community, the culture here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Just to go back really quickly to, you mentioned about this later generation that comes over closer to the 1770s. Um, These kinship networks and connections between Scots did not end when they crossed the Atlantic. For the most part, there are a number of Scots, I'm thinking about like the McAllister family up around Cross Creek, um, that are just corresponding with family back and forth in Scotland constantly and trying to really kind of open up avenues for bringing more people over. It's oftentimes what we call chain migration or serial migration. So there are connections and support networks that these new generations coming over are able to take advantage of. You're not leaving your family behind. Exactly. In many cases, you're actually rejoining family, um, coming to something that would seem more familiar to you. Um, And in terms of recreating life in the lower Cape Fear, um, you know, they're coming from farming backgrounds, from agriculture. So in Scotland, they they probably had experience uh, with either managing or actually farming um, these estates that had, you know, oats and other types of grains, barley and so forth, uh, or livestock, particularly cattle that they're raising. And so they have that kind of experience. They're kind of replicating that here as well. Um, But of course, now they can do so on their own land, on their own terms. And um, they can also take advantage of like the naval stores that are here. But certainly it is a different climate. Um, You know, just I experienced that shock coming back myself to North Carolina. Um, And in one case, there's a Scott that uh, he, he spent some time he had uh, he was a second generation Scot, uh, born in North Carolina. Took some time to do his education in Glasgow in the late 18th century. Came back to North Carolina and just complained about how much he felt like he was actually suited for a colder climate. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't a smooth transition completely. I mean, not necessarily. I mean, one you're at the time. I mean, you're not taking a plane. You're taking months long journey exactly. to this new world and having to really just do what you could to make it work. Um, and that's really, you know, thinking about that now, you know, even then and now that's, that's such an incredible thing to kind of wrap your head around. Um, but then trying to replicate a life here that you, you wanted is, uh, it's really interesting to think about. Um, now we are kind of at this point inching our way towards the revolutionary war. Mm -hmm. I've read things where it said that the earlier Scots who came over, they, they felt a, deeper sense of 
colonialism and sided with some of the rebels, um, the rebels, the patriots, whatever you like to call them, <laughs> depending on how you see them. Exactly. Um, but, you know, that wasn't the case for some of these later ones, because the crown's starting to recognize some of this tension, some of this rebellion, and they're starting to, anyone who's coming into their colony, they want to basically make sure they're on their side if they're going to let them in. And so what was that you know, relationship like and what was that decision process like for some of these Scots who had to um, pick a side? It's very complicated. I bet. Um, <laughs> and, and it's not always very clear cut, even looking at specific individuals. Um, yeah, so there is this kind of long understanding that some of the earlier generations that maybe had come along with the Argyle colony in the 1730s and, and even before uh, 1745, that you know there would have been people uh, maybe who tended towards that patriot side. Um, there's certainly evidence that the Provincial Congress actually tried to recruit guys like Alexander McAllister and Farquhar Campbell to kind of introduce these newcomers to the fact of, you know, this is why we're, we're having problems with Great Britain and Parliament, and maybe try to ease them into that and, and perhaps even court their, um, their interest and their support. Um, there's also some notes that they even tried to um, send uh, Gallic uh, addresses to these communities so they would understand because many of them didn't speak English as well yeah, yeah. Um, to to understand you know what the American cause was all about. Um, I think what it gets down to in the end though for some of those especially those coming later towards the 1770s why do they choose loyalty to the crown? I think part of it is that the crown represented you know the opportunities of empire um, and even though the Scots you know often kind of got a raw deal in some of these concerns uh, with England, uh, you know, they still had a lot of affinity for this idea of empire and being able to to make something of yourself, kind of that self-interest, um, but also knowing that a lot of that was tied up in, you know, supporting the empire. So getting land, all that kind of stuff, you know, you want to be supportive of that. You want to be supportive. And also, if you come in and support the person trying to overthrow the group, the organization, the country that is overseeing the colonies, then you have a whole new world of problems or advantages. But you don't really know what that looks like because you're coming into an England controlled country. Right. If the England control goes away, then you're in a new country, a new world, really. And you don't know what kind of role you play in that. So, I, yeah. I mean, I can think I can understand this. I have sympathy for the people who are like, let's look at what we know mm -hmm. and support that. Yeah. Um, I just think it's fascinating to think about that as from a, from an immigrant standpoint, mm -hmm. because I think our default, at least most of our defaults is to side with the Patriots because they created the country that we now live in. And so certainly I know spending time in Scotland, it definitely gave me a different um, perspective on things, yeah. you know, thinking about the other side of the equation. And yeah, I mean, it was a practical decision. In some cases it was what's going to serve me best in the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, is it going to be, you know, looking out for myself and my family in terms of, you know, if this revolution doesn't really go anywhere, you know, what happens if the Patriots fail, you know, they're going to be, you know, back to square one again. You don't necessarily want to be on the bad side of the empire. Um, but then at the same time, you know, 
can you float around and kind of maybe play both sides? There were certainly people who did that. Uh, Farquhar Campbell's a really good example because early on he's courted by the Wilmington Committee of Safety. He's actually a member of the Committee of Safety and um, some other groups that were associated with the Sons of Liberty, actually. Um, but then he ends up fighting alongside Scottish Highlanders and Loyalists at Moore's Creek. He gets captured and taken to Philadelphia to prison and eventually gets out on parole, comes back to North Carolina, and he kind of, you know, apologizes and gets to take an oath of allegiance, essentially, to the new state. And it's all kind of, you know, back to normal yeah. for him. He's able to take part in the new state government, and he serves as a state senator later on. So got lucky. Exactly. Well, and also, I don't think that we can forget that a lot of these Scots knew what it was like to lose to the British. I mean, there had already been a rebellion. That was one of the reasons that they were pushed out. And so they knew what it looked like to go up against and rebel in this British crown and lose and see their way of life change. Sure thing. I mean, after the Jacobite rebellion in 1745, and you have uh, the loss of the the Scots who supported the Stuarts and guys like Bonnie Prince Charlie, who are kind of trying to come back and take over rule of Scotland uh, from England and the Hanoverians, uh, essentially, you know, that's going to rake all sorts of changes across the Highlands, not only some of the economic changes, but, you know, Gallic culture, for example, is suppressed, um, you know, Highland dress and the Gallic language, all those types of things are really tried to, you know, they're almost trying to expunge that from Scottish society to the point where by the time we get to the end of the 18th century, um, that's why you get guys like Sir Walter Scott who are trying to kind of bring that resurgence of Highland culture back. We mentioned it a few times, the Battle of Morse Creek Bridge, um, and we've even done an episode on the show about it, um, which uh, we worked with Dr. Chris Fonville Jr., which who you know as well. Yes. And... Uh, And we spoke a little bit in that episode about the Highland Scots and their role, but I think it's really important, especially in this episode, to underscore just how important a moment that was for those Scots in this area, because that loss effectively scatters them pretty much. I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot are um, escape or they're captured and they have to start looking elsewhere for their future. I mean, what does it look like for these Scots after that battle? Yeah, um, it is a defining moment because essentially it, it suppresses that loyalist activity um, for several years, not only in North Carolina, but really kind of in the South for a while. So, um, you know, for Scots, you know, if they weren't uh, taken captive and of course, those that were taken captive, they've got families still left behind in Cross Creek and Campbellton. And, you know, they're kind of just waiting it out in some cases, women and children who or the elderly as well, who are just kind of left behind to shift for themselves for a while. Um, and they face partisan violence. You know, there are kind of these raiding parties that come along and, um, you know, wreak havoc and, you know, set farms on fire and, and are plundering and, and pillaging and that sort of thing. Um, that's happening on both sides, of course. But but certainly there's like the immediate effect of that. But then, you know, for those who don't side with the Patriot cause, they're looking for um, that next step. And for some of that, that's actually to, to leave. And, you know, I'll say that these prisoners, they weren't taken prisoner and then kept here. They were shipped elsewhere. So a yeah. lot of people's, you know, husbands, they're the people who are running their farms or running their families. They're gone for years because they're sent off to camps or, or somewhere else. New York, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Boston, stuff Philadelphia, like that. Baltimore in particular. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, when you start to look at them starting to make these moves, they move west. They move, where do they move? I mean, a lot of Highland Scots, you see 
kind of in the mountains of this area. But um, I mean, is that where a lot of them stay or do they go elsewhere? Um, actually, a lot of them go elsewhere. And, and, and in some cases, by this at this point in time, we don't see a huge shift of the, of the Scottish population westward. Okay. It's actually going to be back out of the American colonies. Nice. Um, the majority are going to head to places um, that are in the British Empire, places like Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, um, to East Florida, to cities like St. Augustine, uh, which at that point in time was under British control, and it was kind of passed back and forth between the British and Spanish. Mm. And then when the Spanish regained control at the end of the American Revolution, they're again, having to move back out into the Atlantic world, and they end up in the Bahamas. Um, some of them head back to Scotland and to Britain. Um, it's really kind of where they can find the next opportunity. And um, there's quite a few, especially those Highlanders that end up in Nova Scotia and kind of maybe create what they had hoped to create in North Carolina there instead. Well, and as you said, that if there wasn't prejudice before, there becomes that prejudice after the war of you sided with the enemy. Absolutely. And so where are you going to go? Because really a lot of these Scottish Highlanders, they were already outsiders before the end of uh, beginning of the war. And so now that they were, if they sided with the loyalists, you know, they were on the outside again and that pushes them out. Now, one person that I know that happened to you spoke, you wrote a lot about um, recently, uh, her name was Flora McDonald. And so what was her story? Because it, as you mentioned in your piece for salt magazine, um, her story kind of comes full circle for her. Yeah, Flora is a fascinating character. Um, she kind of comes onto the scene, and, and really her celebrity in Scotland is actually more to do with the 1745 rebellion because uh, she's kind of in just the right place at the right time, I guess you could say, in that she helps aid the getaway of Bonnie Prince Charlie at the end of the Battle of Culloden uh, to get him out of Scotland. Um, for that, she's punished. But then eventually she goes back to the Highlands, kind of resumes life as usual, gets married and so forth. And her and her husband, Alan McDonald, um, who is a distant kinsman, uh, they kind of try to make a life of their own there around family and friends. But there's a lot of changes going on in terms of land ownership and um, his job as kind of a, a leaseholder is also changing and contracts are changing. And not only that, you have plunging cattle prices. Um, they endure particularly bad spring uh, a couple years before they decide to immigrate that kills off a large number of their cattle. Mm-hmm. And um, so they're kind of left with having that that choice of do we try to stick it out or, or do we head for something else? And so some immigration of the McDonald clan had already started to North Carolina, uh, again, because of those connections that we see between the two places. And they just end up kind of following along with that and using those connections to make their way to North Carolina. But once they get over here, um, you know, they, they try to get things going. They have a farm in Anson County and um, things seem to be going pretty well. Uh, but then they get wrapped up in things heading towards the revolution. Um, this is around 1774, 1775. Um, Alan McDonald, he has some military experience and uh, he gets caught up in trying to, you know, side with the governor uh, and maybe try to to entice some of the the Highland Scots to remain on that Loyalist side. And as that happens, you know, there's going to be uh, that movement towards Moores Creek. Eventually uh, he and one of the, their sons fights at Moores Creek 
and Flora's left behind. Uh, they're captured, taken off to Philadelphia, um, and she's left at home, you know, with family and children to deal with and, um, you know, facing a lot of um, persecution, of course, from the Patriots. But she actually writes about later on that she had um, actually faced quite a lot of backlash from other Highland Scots that felt like her husband had been an instigator in actually leading many of their men off to Moore's Creek. And so um, they kind of take that on, out on her a bit socially, wow. um, which is just fascinating. But eventually they are able to meet back up again in New York, where he's taken up a new role in uh, kind of raising a Highland regiment for the British Army and uh, eventually make it to Nova Scotia for a bit. But then things go pretty badly there. They decide to go back to England, where they're kind of trying to find some kind of aid from the government. When that is kind of in limbo, they try to make it back to Nova Scotia, end up getting caught by the French. It's still a mess. So they head back to Scotland and they just decide to stay. So back to square one. That is a long way to go to end up where you started. It's a very roundabout story. But it's it's also indicative of there were Highland Scots who who found a place in America. I Absolutely. mean they they didn't they didn't just all leave. Mm-hmm. But for her and for him, I mean it didn't work out very well. I mean, their sons also, several of their sons died, right? Yeah, in, in yeah. The war. Um, one had, I think, uh, been wounded and he eventually kind of died because of some exposure to the elements and that sort of thing. And then one, um, I believe, got lost at sea. Um, but wow. I don't have many records on that. Well, it's just, again, just interesting that they were part of this rebellion. They were part of this war in Scotland. They come to America. They are, again, part of another war they have significant losses and then have to go home again. And it's just, I thought that was a fascinating story when I read what you wrote and she's not the only one who, who saw potential obviously in Wilmington, but after the war, how many Scots are here? How many stay in Wilmington and make that life and move ahead? I mean, do, or is there still a Scottish president presence here in Wilmington? Yeah. Um, I don't think we have a really good firm number on how many people stayed, but we do know an estimate that I think is kind of on the low side of how many Highlanders were in North Carolina before the war. And that's somewhere between 12 and 15,000, but I think the numbers could be higher than that. Um, But for those that did stay, certainly um, we're going to still see more immigration happening into the early 19th century, especially as more changes are coming to the highlands. Things really kind of get worse as we're heading into the early 19th century for for tenants and so forth and farmers. Um, So there's still, you know, the opportunity. America is still, you know, a good place to go uh, after even after all of this uh, fighting and so forth. But um, those that remain here in Wilmington, certainly they've they've built up Wilmington. I think Scott's kind of made the city uh, what it was in the 18th century. They serve in politics. They serve in. Uh, you know, various capacities as merchants, even those that are in the backcountry areas like Fayetteville and further westward, they are serving as, you know, these links in a chain, I guess you could say, of trade um, with these further settlements that are that are moving westward. And, um, you know, they're, they're still a very strong presence um, here today. You know, you've got groups like the Scottish Society of Wilmington, uh, who are very active, very proud of their culture, both you know, families that have been here in Wilmington or North Carolina for a long period of time, as well as those who are new to the area um, who want to you know, maybe get into a, a group that is um, like minded and, ha- and shares a like culture and that sort of thing. And you know, we've got Highland Games in North Carolina up at Grandfather Mountain. You have, um, you know, Scotland County and these like place names and so forth that have a very rich history um, associated with them. 
and I think a lot of evidence that the Scots are still around and uh, have had a long lasting legacy and impact. Well, and it sounds like they were able, at least to some degree, to hold on to that identity. Mm -hmm. But as the war ends and America starts to craft its own new national identity, they you see that duality, I guess, because the people who stay in Wilmington who help, you know, build up Wilmington before and after the war, they then become Wilmingtonians. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. as much as they probably identify as Scottish, this is also their new home and they're being they're playing a huge role in building it up. And so I imagine that there was a real effort to hold on to that sense of identity and culture and um, just what you knew before you came here, but also uh, know what you could do here, I guess, in, in Wilmington. Sure thing. Yeah. I mean, we think about identity, even the way we, we personally identify ourselves in one situation, we, we might present ourselves in one way. Uh, in another situation, we might you know pick a different characteristic to emphasize. And it's kind of the same thing with Scots. Um, identity is malleable. It's flexible and changes over time. So it's never one fixed thing. And so, you know, to say, you know, is there a time when the Scots cease to be Scots and now they're Americans? I don't think so. I think they, you know, at certain times they are really going to play up that Scottish culture, but other times they're, they're going to be, you know, part of the larger American culture and that new identity that's being created just as, you know, at times they maybe identified more clearly with the British empire. So I, I guess the, the ultimate legacy of, of Scots in, and, and, you know, Highland Scots in this area is that they came here as immigrants. They, they chose a side, but then they, either stuck here and, and worked to build America or they sought a, a new life elsewhere. And uh, I think that's really interesting to think about. Um, and I don't think many people think about that type of immigration at that such a pivotal moment in American history, having such a, an impact then and all the way to now. Absolutely. I mean, when we think about immigration, we often think of kind of the late 19th century and Ellis Island and all that sort of thing. But for North Carolina, Wilmington was kind of our little own Ellis Island. And I think that's why groups like the Scottish Society of Wilmington and uh, their Scottish Immigration Memorial Fund are working to try to recognize um, that legacy and the number of people that came through both Brunswick Town and Wilmington and up the Cape Fear to make a new life here in North Carolina. Absolutely. And and the, the, the memorial that she's mentioning is the Scottish Society is looking to raise money and find a particular spot along the Cape Fear River, the riverfront, to put up a monument to the legacy of the Highland Scots. Over the years, people have learned through records and research and everything at Brunswick Town and here in Wilmington, just how many thousands came through this area. And so the Scottish Society is working, you know, pretty diligently and working over the past couple of years to honor that in in a very visible way along the very visible Wilmington waterfront. And um, it, it's really interesting to see them push that legacy out to be more visible because, and one reason we're doing this episode is I did a few stories about the TV show Outlander, which has its roots in Scottish uh, heritage and is historical uh, fiction, but it plays in and and really incorporates a lot of this North Carolina history because its characters make that immigration over. And uh, and so that has brought a lot of visibility to Scottish heritage and Scottish society. Um, it has sent people to local historic sites like Brunswick Town and Tryon Palace in New Bern, the Bergwin Wright um, House down here in Wilmington, and of course, Moores Creek uh, National Battlefield. Um, but it's also just turned people on to this almost, you know, unless you're looking for it, forgotten history that there was a, a, a substantial immigration of these, this particular people 
here in Wilmington and uh, it played a very significant role. And so there are definitely groups trying to make sure people don't forget it. Absolutely. Um, Kimberly, thank you so much for coming in and talking. Um, I'm jealous that you got to study abroad in Scotland. That sounds amazing. <laughs> um, and I would encourage everyone to um, be on the lookout for more of Kimberly's work. She's working on a book about this very story. I am. So um, I imagine that is a uh, long and arduous uh, process. <laughs> um, but I would encourage everyone to be on the lookout for that when it comes out. And um, thank you so much for coming to talk about this. I know that this is something that a lot of people have had their eyes on at least casually because of outlander or things they see in wilmington um but you've done so much research so i'm glad i got to talk to you about it thank you so much for having me hunter thanks that's it for this episode of cape fear unearthed and the history of the highland scots in the cape fear region thank you so much for joining me as a reminder We will now be debuting new episodes of the podcast every two weeks in 2020. So be sure to check back in then for the next chapter from our local history book. Until our next episode, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode and I share all of my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every week. In it, I include links to all of our episodes and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Kate Fear on Earth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.